What's going on, guys? And welcome to episode number 49 of RizzoCast. And we are joined today by none other than one of my high school baseball coaches, Jeff Ramirez from Archbishop Burden High School in San Francisco. He coaches high school baseball. He's done it for a few years now. Coach Jeff, how you doing? Man, I'm doing well. I'm doing well, but I want to give my audience, which is very, it's very small. It's basically my family and a few friends, but I want to let them know who you are. So let's talk about your awards, your, oh your high school, your college. You have like, what, like seven, eight, how many awards do you have? And what are they called? I'm really, I'm really not in the loop in those. So what are we doing? Like baseball journalism or oh, all. So let's see baseball. I think I only have one. <laughs> I got most inspirational freshman year, I think. Oh, um, but okay. for journalism, I think. Uh, there's a there's a there's a lot of them for individual stories, um, but I guess the most recent one is a good place to to a good uh, a good one to start here. I got one for a story I did almost a year ago about the pandemic, and it got a national uh, kind of national award. So that was pretty awesome. But it, it's been a fun ride, but it's just the beginning. So how you doing? How's how's life? How you how you how are you holding up during this pandemic? What's going on with you? Well, I'm one of the blessed ones that still has a job through all this. So I'm, I can't complain whatsoever with everything that's going on. Um, I just feel for the kids, the multi-sport athletes, the athletes in general, students. They're essentially being put in prison for something that they didn't do. You know, um, all these rules and regulations that growing up, I never had to deal with, not even close. So I'm doing great. Doing great. I can't complain at all. How are you doing throughout all this? Having a lot of fun. So I'm excited to have you on. We're going to talk a lot of baseball. Uh, should be a lot of fun. We talked on the phone. We kind of planned out what we were going to talk about. So oh, yeah. you're a great baseball guy. I mean, when did it start for you? Like growing up, when did you know that, you know, hey, I really love this game? When was that for you? I had a luxury of an older brother that, um, you know, he was really into sports and when you're really young and you have an older brother, you don't win. <laughs> so I got used to losing at a very young age. And I think what that taught me was to love the game and not care about the outcome. And so, you know, I was pretty average throughout my entire career until I hit about maybe 11 years old. Um, and I just thought, I was very obsessed with the sport because of sports center and this guy right here. I don't know if you know who this guy is. Barry Bonds. Yeah. Barry Bonds, man. I was very blessed to, to watch him play. Um, but I'm going to give you a golden snippet, which not a lot of people know about my life and why I got into sports in general. Oh, let's do it. So when you have an older brother, your brother ends up getting older friends um, from about third to fifth grade, a little bit of sixth grade. Your boy got picked on, bro. Mm. And I, I'm not like just like huh, make fun of him. I'm talking like walking to school, getting pushed to the ground and kicked and punched like once a week. Like it got to the point where my escape was focusing my vision and, and all my focus on sports. The only thing I was really good at. So that's what growing up was like until... I hit about 11, 12, really came into my own a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I would say just external things around me really brought me closer to the game. Um, and not a lot of people know this, too, but my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was eight or nine years old. And uh, I like to I told you this um, in our game meetings, or our team meetings, where... Mm -hmm where I remember my mom coming to a game when she was on chemotherapy. And I just remember thinking it was the only game in my life where I didn't care what happened, right? And I ended up hitting a home run that game, like my first home run over a fence, never did it in my whole life. And when my mom came to my game, when she was on chemo, I actually hit a home run. So uh, that was kind of the start of my career and understanding at a young age that it's all mentality, right? Like there's so many good people on paper, but once you step into that game, it's, it's anyone's game. 
So I really held on to that feeling that it could be my day, right? So that's why I loved uh, the game of baseball. Yeah, that's a that's a great story. So what were some of the differences? Because I know this is something we wanted to t- uh, touch on. What were some of the differences from you playing baseball growing up? Because what would you say the years in terms of years um, for you? Was it the 90s? It was the 90s, two, early 2000s? Would yeah. you say that's right? Yeah. So what was kind of the difference between that compared to someone like me or someone of my generation or some of the players that are getting into the big leagues right now? What was some of the differences that you would, you found? You know, if you asked me this question right when I got out of baseball, I probably would have had that old man. Uh, these kids aren't tough. These kids, blah, blah, blah. but none of that's true. It's the same game. Steve. I swear to you, it's the same game. I think the difference between when I was growing up playing and now is that success and failure are heightened because of how much you can put on the internet, how much video you can get. It, it was very hard back in the day to get an at bat on video. You had to like buy a legit camera. Now everyone has that in their phones and literally everybody in the park can watch you fail or succeed. And I think back in our day, our egos were easily kind of easily deflated because uh, there was so much talent. But now I feel like today's ego, like you ever heard the the term, never get too high when you win, never get too low when you lose. Yeah. I believe that's the issue today, that kids get too high when they win and too low when they lose because their successes and their failures are documented now even at a young age like I'm, I'm watching people upload videos and at bats of their kids when they're 11 and 12 years old I, I never would have dreamed of of watching myself hit when I was 10 11 12 years old so I think that's the major difference is I think the external pressure is a lot harder these days on these kids man mm-hmm. and that's where I think the difference is yeah I think you know parents are are big time involved now. Right. As you mentioned, and you know, they're trying to get their kids picked up by a college, by a D one college at 11 and 12 years old. And it's like, it's not, it's, I don't think it's healthy at all. I mean, yeah. cause at that age, I mean, you're with your friends. Um, That's so far from your thought process. Mm-hmm. You're that young. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, you're having fun with your friends. And I think when, when all of that should come to your mind should it should be at a higher level when you realize this is what I want to do. I'm good enough to where I could do that. So that's what I think in terms of making baseball career. Um, Cause a lot of these kids, most of them are not, you know, if, ask a little league player or, I mean, we could just pop up some statistics. I'm not going to do it, but you and I could just say that nobody on a little league team on a nor- on an average little league team will ever make it to the big leagues. Would you agree with that? That's 100% true. And that's what's so hard about communicating to parents why coaches do certain things. Um, oh, you probably have to hear about it all the time. I mean, well, <laughs> I, I, try, I, try to, I try to keep an open and honest communication line with I, – I, I was a head coach of the, the Ruse. We call them the Ruse. And I really learned that communicating to the parents honestly – about what I'm trying to do was key. And I think I, I tried to gain respect that way. Maybe some of them did, maybe some of them didn't. I'm not sure. But um, I think when, when you think too much of your kid, I think that hurts him because he may not think that much of himself, right? And even if he did, there needs to be someone to knock you down. There really needs to be. And I think that's huge for today's athletes. Um, I was watching Shaquille O'Neal interview uh, that guard from from Utah I forgot his name um, but he's really good he's a he's a he's a stud and Shaq said hey he started off the conversation by saying you're one of my favorite players these days but he said I don't think you know you have what it takes to be a superstar I don't think you have enough to make it to the you know championship and back in my day that was kind of a, a kick in the butt a lot of fire under you that it wasn't, it wasn't saying like, I really don't think you can do it. Cause if he really truly thought that he wouldn't even pay attention to him. Right. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, like, 
like your your 11 year old 12 year old kid hits a double or hits a home run and now all of a sudden like you have plans of a major league yeah he's babe, he's babe ruth yeah <laughs> you just got to take it a day at a time like yeah. it, i don't think people understand how puberty plays a role in how good you are as a kid mm-hmm. like it, it you just hit puberty first that's why you're hitting the ball farther than this kid then then you go to high school all of a sudden people are bigger stronger and better than you how are you going to compete with that and then, yeah and then the the mind game starts but yeah don't get too high when you win don't get too low when you lose that's it's kind of the opposite nowadays as as you see mm-hmm. it is definitely the opposite and i like what you mentioned earlier when you said that they get too high when they win and they get too low when they lose and when they get too low when they lose I think the pressure is taking a lot of kids out of the game and um, even out of sports altogether. Cause I mean, I, you probably grew up where, you know, get home for dinner, you know, Mm -hmm. stay outside all day, get home for dinner. So what was that like for you as a kid staying outside all day with your friends playing baseball? Was, was that like something that you endured as a kid? It, it was an everyday thing. And when I say everyday, I don't mean I took a random Sunday off, a random Wednesday off, a random Saturday off. No, if there were, if it was not raining outside, me and my friends were competing in something, right? Baseball, basketball, football, didn't really matter. I was really blessed to have good talent around me and kids that really cared to get better. Because if you don't have that, how are you going to put yourself, right? If you don't have somebody that's better than you, if you don't have somebody that you look at, like, I want to be like that guy. Look how good he is. I felt like I had, I was blessed to have not only good talent, but good coaches around me. Um, but yeah, for, for these kids, there's a lot of distraction. There's a lot of technology distraction where they, they, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I don't want to say like, Oh, if I had technology, I would leave it alone. I probably would have fell into that too, because it, I, I'm into it now. I have an Instagram. I have a phone that I check. You're here on Zoom with me. I'm here on Zoom with you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would love to. I mean, there was not a time if there was a nice day out that you went to a park or a basketball court that it was empty. Mm-hmm. And all I see is empty parks and basketball courts now. It's, it's bizarre to me. Very bizarre. Um, we need to get the kids back out. That's for sure. And there are kids that go out. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what a lot, a lot of people don't understand is there there are people that that parents pay a lot of money to go to certain facilities. And these kids have a real edge on kids that are staying home and then make the team because they have some talent. Um, but you don't need you don't need a, a thousand dollar facility when you have a park right next to your house. You have infinite things you can do at that mm-hmm. park. Or a garage infinite. to throw a ball against or something. Or My net, Lord, something like you, that. I mean, I had to be creative. I mean, I was known for uh, hoarding tennis balls. And for those who don't know, my mom is probably going to crack up right now. Um, but for Christmas from seven years to about 15, because 15, I started taking off side view mirrors. So I stopped hitting tennis balls on my street. But you that was when the exit velo started coming. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. when I started really, really using some torque. But you would catch me out on my front yard hitting tennis balls for hours on end. And I would go through lineups, you know, like if oh. Rafael for call came up, I was batting left handed. He was a switch hitter. But um, that's how I worked on my game. And what I didn't know is my streets narrow. So mm-hmm. I really have to stay center, which as a kid, I'm not thinking center field. I'm thinking, I'm just going to, I used to mark out places where I thought home runs would be. And if I hit the tennis ball over there, I would like, I would like pimp my home run as I'm going to get my ball. I was so in my head as a kid. And I think uh, if kids are more like that now, where they're just so obsessed that nothing else matters in the world, you would see some absolute monsters on that field. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I did the exact same thing. I did batting stances through the lineups. Uh, Albert Pujols was a favorite. I mean, I loved oh, his yeah. stance. I would do pitching mechanics. 
you know, I, and I would do it by uniform number. So like, Oh, that's 40, interesting. Yeah. 49 was Javier Lopez. And I'd go all the way up and make random numbers and assign players to random numbers. It was a lot of fun. And, um, the more the reps, like it doesn't even matter if you're on a field, the more the reps, you know, you're still doing more than some other kids. Yeah. So let's get into some of your playing, your, your playing days. I know you went through, Oh boy. Through high school. People may not know this and I didn't mention it in the intro. Cause I knew we were going to get to it. When, when you introduced me and I, you know, the story when, <laughs> when we first met, yep. yeah, when we first met, we were in, we were in the hallway and um, we had to watch some, uh, I was entering into my first year at varsity in high school and we had to watch videos of infielders making right. plays. So we would call out the, the players would call out suggestions from, we were in a classroom and we would say Angelton Simmons and uh, coach Jeff would, would type in Angelton Simmons and we'd watch highlight videos of him before we got into that room. He stuck his hand out. It was his first day on the job and said, I'm coach Jeff. I was drafted by the Padres. <laughs> so that was yeah. fantastic. Tell us about the draft. Uh, when did you, how did you find out and, and what kind of, uh, cause I know you didn't sign. So yeah. what kind of went down and, and tell me a little bit about that. So interesting story to say the least. It started my sophomore year. I started getting letters and I, I think I still have them at the house where I got a letter from every single division one school in California. Right. So I have this big old stack and it started my sophomore year. And so I started to think like I'm getting my name out there. Right. Then I started to have cross checkers come into my game. Now, for those who don't know, there are scouts and there are cross checkers. When the scout thinks that you're worthy, they bring in the cross checker, I, I believe. Right. Mm -hmm. And so even though I got drafted by the Padres, the Cincinnati Reds were the ones that kept knocking at my door. And when I say knocking at my door, I mean, literally came to my house, right? My uh -huh. senior year, which is interesting. Interestingly enough, they came over, they had a DVD. DVDs just came out like a couple of years ago. They had a DVD of the Cincinnati Reds way. And so it was almost like the Yankees where they said, you know, you had to shave your face, um, uh, the standard of greatness, all these, all these things. And then looking back at the big red machine, I had to learn about them, um, which I already knew a lot about them already because I was a Joe Morgan fan. He was, uh, even though my grandpa, rest in peace, my grandpa hated Joe Morgan's broadcasting, but loved his baseball play. He thought he talked too much and tried to call the game. But anyway, so the Cincinnati Reds, actually, when you get drafted back in the day, they did an eye test. Right. So they wanted to know if you can see certain colors, certain shapes, certain sizes. And it looked like something they brought something from a. From a doctor's office, it just looked weird, but it was so cool to go through uh, the vision test. We're going through everything. And it's so funny. My my high school coach, Carlos Ramon, was there and I remember him asking me, hey, are you six foot or are you six one? And me thinking like without any shoes on, I'm five eleven. But I told the guy I was six foot, right? And then my coach brought me aside and said, if anyone ever asks you if you're six foot or six one, you tell them you're six one. And so I kind of blew that right off the bat. But they sat me down and they wrote a piece. They wrote a, a number on a piece of paper and it was $50,000. And they said, that would be your signing bonus. And we're thinking of drafting you from the 10th to the 15th round, right? So they said, you don't have to answer us now. We'll, we'll come back. They gave me a date um on which it was like one of my last varsity games at home and they said we'll come there and we'll talk to you then I said okay fine and I wasn't I was a very immature kid I knew if I signed that and I didn't have anything to come back on that my life was going to be tough and I had good family members that really put confidence in me that um if I went to college I can maybe get more money, maybe less money, but I'll be more prepared for the real world. So when they came uh, for my, one of my last senior games, um, after the game, I actually took BP with the cross checker and the scout going left-handed, going right-handed. And, uh, I, you know, I did as, as well as, as anybody could do, I guess, but 
what a lot of people don't know is there was a, a Burlingame guy. Oh, my God. How can I forget his name? Uh, he played like 10 or 11 years in minor league baseball, and he actually was in the workout with me. Um, this dude was hitting absolute bombs. <laughs> I'm not talking about like, oh, okay, he just hit it over the fence. He hit it 150 feet over the fence, and it wasn't with the metal bat we were taking BP with. This guy was hitting absolute dingers, making me look like a little leadoff hitter, right? So um, they brought me aside and asked me if I wanted to sign. And, and I essentially told them that I think I'm going to go to college. And so they kept going back and forth. And I just said, I, I just don't think I'm ready yet, but I'm on my way. And so what the Padres did is they drafted and followed me. You know, 2006 is the last time that the draft and follow actually happened. And what, what the draft and follow is that they, uh, they own your rights for a year. So nobody's allowed to sign you until they release you. So technically, I was part of the San Diego Padres organization for a year playing at CSM. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but that was essentially it. I went to Skyline. I had the best year of my life with one of the best coaches I've ever had in my life, John Quintel. Man, did he give me some hitting instruction i've never hit like that in my entire life and i probably never will again i led the league in home runs rbis triples total bases um i was like second or third in batting average i just had a heck of a year and i didn't get drafted mm. yeah it was it was disappointing because i thought this was it like scouts were coming to watch jimmy parquet and Jimmy Parquet is one of my favorite players I've ever played with. Heard Fought. the name. Yes. He's a Pacifica guy. He is. I've spent, so this is very randomly. I spent some time with him one day. Uh, my grandma was actually a, uh, uh, she was, she worked at a daycare uh, in, in Pacifica, California, of course. And he, after his career, it was either after his career or during the off season, he was, working at the daycare as 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 one of the instructors or whatever staff members and uh, I was visiting my grandma and we played it we formed a wiffle ball game and uh, he was hitting bombs on the roof so I yeah I do know the name Jimmy Parquet small world yeah so scouts were coming to see him play and I tried to like ride that piggyback a little bit and and try to outshow him as we were trying to win games together um didn't quite happen didn't didn't uh hey jimmy can, can you tell him that my name is jeff ramirez yeah, yeah. <laughs> jimmy tell him i'm pretty good bro but um yeah that didn't pan out but i did get a scholarship lee university didn't have a great experience over there um i i went over there with the wrong attitude let me just say that it was it was when you're young you think you're cooler and better than you actually are and so my ego was was very big and it became very small when I didn't find success early. So it was uh, kind of the depth of my professional career over there. Um, but I'm thankful for it because it brought me into coaching. And yeah, let's get into that coaching. How yeah. did that transition? How was that transition? Because I know you mentioned you were, you know, a very successful high school high school player and had some good college years. Was it difficult coaching? Because this is the number one thing. This is why we don't see a lot of great players as coaches. Was it difficult, you know, trying to get down to a level? You know, you're so used to being up here in baseball and then coaching someone that doesn't have the skill set that, that you have. Was that hard kind of adjusting in the coaching? It, it's, I'll tell you this, it's not hard at all if there's passion, right? Mm -hmm. If that kid wants to get better, that fuels you as a coach or at least me because I, I I'm gonna say this I might disrespect somebody that I've that I've coached or played with but I, I I'm just gonna tell the truth here Steve mm -hmm. but when I no matter who I coach I feel like I'm better than everybody right at their yeah. age so 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 e even if I felt that way it's it doesn't matter right like I, I'm I think I'm better than you anyway let's get you better Right. So that, that's just me. You know, when you when you interviewed Sean Estes, like, does your I remember the specific question, like, does your stuff still play in today's game? Could yeah. you still pitch? And it, it's so crazy. Like 
maybe, maybe not. But in his mind, he can pitch right now. Like that that's just who he is. He's competitive. So of course my stuff can play. I played in the big leagues against Gary Sheffield, against Carlos Delgado, these guys that mashed baseball's 800 feet. Um, so yeah, I mean, but coaching, coaching though, uh, I got into it with Brandon Ramsey. Shout out. Shout out to Brandon Ramsey, man. He, uh, now interesting story about Brandon Ramsey growing up, he was the local Barry Bonds. I mean, he was, I think he was two years older than my brother, but he was a young two years older. So my brother could play with them at certain times of their career. And when I say a man child, this dude was a man child, dude. He was 12, 13, 14 years old, hitting absolute 370 foot bombs. I used to look forward to watching Brandon hit Mm -hmm. and we didn't have maybe any conversation until I reached out to my old coach saying that I need a, I want to get back in the coaching. And he said, I'll give you Brandon Ramsey's number. And so when I called him, he was like, yeah, man, let's get you out here. Let's, uh, let's coach this JV team. And I could not ask for a better coach to work under and learn from the way he is detailed about every single thing that he does. You can attest to this. Oh yeah. And in case you guys don't know, Brandon Ramsey is, the head coach at Archbishop Reardon High School in San Francisco. So, um, and he brought Coach Jeff, of course, along with him. And yeah, he, I've heard the stories. I've heard the stories. I think yeah. you told the one about the, the tennis courts at San Bruno Park. Oh my Lord. Okay, not <laughs> tennis courts, but uh, the school. This guy's 15 years old. Anybody that knows San Bruno Park knows there's no fence anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a score, there's a scoreboard about 380 to left field. And when he's 15 years old, I see a ball disappear like a golf ball off of his bat. It, it went over the scoreboard and literally disappeared in my vision. So it was like watching a major league hitter against an eight-year-old. It was so, it was so much of a sight. I just remember like, I, I want to be that guy. I want to hit balls that far and that. And uh, yeah, anyway, so. Getting into coaching with him, like I said, his attention to detail. And that's where I really found my spark. Because I had the eye just like him, but maybe not the vernacular of defining success within a drill, right? Because it can get monotonous. But with him, the drill was the drill was the key to success. And so I learned how to really dial in on details, defining what success is leading up to or we play seven innings we don't even play nine innings anymore do we we play seven seven it's Leading been a while a seven <laughs> inning game. yeah <laughs> i don't even know how many innings we play anymore um yeah so that's how i got back into coaching interestingly enough the second year i was the head coach of the jv softball team at el camino and i really learned how to break the game down into the simplest form ever like literally teaching young girls just how to catch the ball decelerate how to throw properly with your wrist and and breaking down the game and into a part where i thought i never would have to but wow did i enjoy that process of seeing these these young ladies transfer from i i don't know really what i'm doing to we won a bunch of ball games so in two years they i guess they didn't win any in my year we went four and eight so i quadrupled their wins but, it, it, you know, I, I really felt good about that. And I felt like that was Brandon Ramsey and then coaching on my own really set me up uh, with a game plan for the future. There was there was time off where I didn't coach because I had to get a career and pay for bills. Right. Mm-hmm. But once I got back into coaching, it was like I never took my foot out. Yeah, no. Attention to detail is the perfect way to describe it. And you know, go, coming up through little league and coming up through pony and I mean, get in front of the ball. That's, you know, that's what you hear or throw harder. Well, coaches don't say that, but yeah. <laughs> throw strikes, move. man, yeah. throw strikes. But oh, the, I didn't know that coach. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and the coaching staff in high school, just really, you know, the detail. I mean, you could coach Ramsey had us running uh, base running 
every single day. And I don't know if there's a high school that does it, but taking turns, looking, you know, running with your head up. I remember one thing you said, base running and base running hesitation is the killer. And it always stuck with me because that's, you know, hesitation, not just in base running, but in baseball and not just in baseball life, like any, any type of hesitation you're ever going to come across is killer. You know, I was, I didn't even know what I was doing when I was on the mound my first two years. And coach Harlan says, your front, uh, your front side is opening up. I didn't even know what that meant. So <laughs> that's the attention to detail. Yeah. I mean, you're hitting your hitting drills that we did with the visualization with our eyes closed point of contact. I mean, all of that was attention to detail. So it's, it's pretty amazing what, um, you know, coaches could teach players, you know, without just saying the normal cliches, get in front of the ball or, you know, coach Lynn, I had him on, I had him on uh, the show a few months ago. We did a triangle infield drill every single day in the winter and yeah. Reardon guys that are listening. Cause this is a highly anticipated episode, just saying, <laughs> so there's a lot of them listening. You guys might hate that triangle drill, but I mean, I was not the greatest infielder, but it made me a whole lot better. So attention to detail is really big. So let's get into hitting. I know this is your, this is your strong suit. This is where you make your money hitting. Do it. So you, what are some of the trends in today's game? I'll tell you the, I'll start this off here. The trend that I hate the most in today's game of baseball is the strikeout. It is the biggest turnoff ah. in my opinion from just somebody watching a game, somebody trying to like look at it from a strategic standpoint. Right. And it's just become so acceptable in this game. Like, walks it there you know you either walk homer or strike out and i can't accept this like if i'm sitting there evaluating a team and a player i cannot accept a strikeout when a guy is standing at second base with nobody out i just it's just not something and then go back yeah, to the especially dugout. taking right a backward mm-hmm. especially a backwards k how is it acceptable so that's my that's my pet peeve like i'd be completely fine if these guys are walking hitting 50 homers but also hitting 300. So what are some of your hitting trends that you've noticed in today's game? I've noticed the two strike hitting has kind of gone out the window, right? Gone. Yep. Gone. Right. Cause when I'm growing up, right. The two strike hitting was okay. Choke up. Don't go forward on your stride. And I want a lot of, if you're a hitter, I want you to try this. I need you to learn how to hit without a stride. This is what turned my career around in college. Um, but anyway, so that's what I feel like. I feel like the two strikes hitting is out the door, especially at the big league level. And I'll tell you why. And I can circle back to this on, on, uh, on shifts, on, on how they evaluate pitchers, to how they pay hitters. Everything is a money game. So guys aren't willing to take the opposite field single anymore because they're not going to get paid for it unless they're stealing a hundred bags a year where if they get on base, they're literally a walking double or triple. Do you know, it's literally an RBI. Do you know, it's been 15 years since somebody stole over 70 bases. My Lord. Isn't that crazy? I I just think it's a money game. I think hitters are chasing that huge check and they're not going to do it bunting. They're not going to do it with the single anymore um and that's what's sad i think it well it's not sad i don't want to say sad what i i don't think it's smart for winning baseball games right you're not going to have nine three-hole hitters in your lineup somebody's got to get on base somebody's got to knock a ball into the gap right somebody's got to repeat that um i'll ask a pitcher how how did the game change in your mind when there was nobody on base to somebody on second and third it was more stressful. I think that's it. I mean, you had to worry about stolen or you had to worry about a guy getting a base hit that that's the main thing yet. You had to worry about, you know, you had to be more perfect with hitting your spots. You had to be more perfect with pitch selection. And um, I, I guess I didn't select my pitches, but everything that was selected was, you know, the right call, of course, because, you know, my, when, when I, when I see somebody at second base, I mean, it just, it just, it, it, it's like a light switch that goes off in your head. Like it's right. like a light switch. It, you're on, what I want to say is that you're on edge, you're on edge more. And it becomes, 
more stressful for the defense because the defense, a ball hit in the left field, you have to make the perfect throw to the plate. Mm-hmm. A ground ball to short, you have to complete the double play. And when there's nobody on base, you bobble a ball, there's still a time to get it out. But when there's guys on base, you bobble a ball, you might not get anybody. Yeah. So, and a I mean, run might score. Yeah. And plus, yeah. there's extra thinking you have to do. Yeah. And if you're thinking when a play is in in progress, you're screwed. If you're trying to make decisions when something's happening in baseball, what I've learned, you are screwed. You have to think about that before. If I'm playing second base and I was more of a PO, so I didn't get to play second base that often. <laughs> if, if I'm playing second base, I mean, and a ball's hit to me and I'm thinking when the ball's hit to me, one, I'm going to screw up and make an error. And two, I'm not going to know where to, where to make the play. So thinking in baseball has to be predetermined and with runners on base, it just completely wipes all that out because you have more to think about. Changes your mindset. Yeah. Yeah. About what you're throwing. Now, now you, now you think about that, that, you know, that one, one curveball, that one, one change up because that goes in the dirt and you don't trust your catcher. That could be a run too, you know, Mm -hmm. or if you Uh hang it, that's three runs instead of one. Yeah. So. And you know what? At the major league level, I, I, I remember growing up thinking, let's see what they have in their bullpen, right? Yeah. Now it's like, <laughs> now it's like, we don't want to get to their bullpen. Everyone throws 99. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, it's such a different, I remember like in the major leagues in 2006, my senior year, there was maybe a handful of guys that can throw 99. Now there's a handful of guys on the Tampa Bay Devil Rays that throw 99. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, but hitters are adjusting to that. Let me let me tell these young kids. You think you throw hard at 85, 86 miles an hour? You got something else coming to you, man. You need you need to take a little off, get some movement, work on your changeup, work on your two seam, work on your cutter. That's going to get better hitters out down the road than your 84 mile an hour four seam. Trust me. Trust me when I say this. Hitters are not scared of 90 anymore. It's just you're a dime a dozen. Yeah, and you're never going to get away with 84 if it's just straight. Oh, I absolutely. Mean, I, you got you to gotta two-seam it. You got to sink it. The evolution of hitting is crazy because I don't think the hitters nowadays think that, you know, they, they're watching home runs, and that's, you know, that's great if you're hitting home runs. But th- there's just a – there's something to it where – 30 home runs and, and, and Barry Bond said this the other day, 30 home runs and 230 is getting you released. How many 300 hitters a lifetime have you seen get released? Yes. Oh my Lord. That is preach, preach young Steven. Preach. <laughs> no, I didn't say Barry Bond said it. Yeah. And uh, we're going to, I'm going to take this and, and carousel it here into the shift. Cause I think they go hand in hand and at, oh, the, absolutely. Big, at the big league level, we've seen, Ryan Howard comes to mind. Ryan Howard was a heck of a left-handed hitter and the shift ended his career. I mean, I've heard him talk about it, how, you know, he was tallying it up. Him and the hitting coach would tally it up after every season and 120 hits were getting taken away from him because of the shift. And on one side of of it, swing mechanics where he could take an away pitch and hit it extremely hard to the pull side, not just like Mm -hmm. rope it to the pull side. And I think, you know, with the shift going on, I think what they're trying to do, and I'll, I'm going to circle back to this is money. Go ahead, get paid to hit a single left when you're a 50 home, 50 home run a year guy. You're yeah. it, there's something about a guy that is a great hitter that can hit the ball over the fence when they see a shift and an open like an open third base as a lefty. There's something that tells them mm, I'm not going to get paid doing that. Yeah. Especially if I'm a first baseman or an outfielder, right? Like, it's just so mind-boggling to me that hitters, you know, and and I'd probably be the same way if I was hitting 50 home runs a year. Like, if I can get a $50 million contract just yanking, hitting 250, 45 home runs, I'd probably do that over the Tony Gwynn approach, hit them where they ain't, hit 320, and maybe hit 15 home runs a year. Mm-hmm. I think – there needs to be more Tony wins and there needs to be more Greg Maddox's in this game. Yes, there sir. Really <laughs> be. 
it, it's it's such a shame that uh, there's a lot of good college kids that can hit good hitting, that can pitch with good movement, and they're getting overlooked because they can't touch 95 or they can't hit the ball 475 feet. And uh, that's not necessarily – I mean, do, do you remember the first time the, the St. Louis Cardinals beat the Red Sox? You might not have been – it was 2004. Were you – were you alive then? I consider myself a baseball historian, so I know what I know what was going on. Do you remember the shortstop for which team? The St. Louis Cardinals. Was it Edgar Renteria? No. Was it Rafael Fercal? No. Was it David? It was David Eckstein. David, David Eckstein. This dude was like five five. He hit like two postseason grand slams. He he was this little guy that was could have been the best player on that field during those world series. He rarely struck out. He made every play at shortstop with the, with the below average arm. This Mm -hmm. guy did not have a great arm. There's guys like that need to get a look real quick, just to end things on the ship. It's taking away athleticism. I think from the middle infielders, like we're watching Max Muncy play second base because he's, you know, the evolution of second baseman, has allowed him to thrive there, right? Mike Mustakis yeah. has gotten time at second base because you're playing in shallow right field. You have no, you know, you're you don't get the Jock Peterson said the other day, positioning in the outfield, he doesn't get to show off his range anymore. I mean, if you're if you're playing second base and you're a good athlete, if you're a good athlete at second base, we don't even know. <laughs> we don't even know if you're a good athlete at second base because you're yeah getting ground balls in the outfield, shallow right field, and you're throwing guys out. So, I mean, I'm glad you brought up Greg Maddox because that's my guy. That right there is my Lord. who I wanted to be. And I, I never saw him pitch. Never but, saw him pitch? Oh, he was yep, – uh, But he was – level. Yeah, he was, he was the guy that I wanted to be because, I mean, what's it, 60? Like 60 – not even 65 at times throughout my career. I didn't even reach any of that. But Maddox was the guy. No, you, I no, mean, no, no. You got set, you got in the seventies your senior year now. Yeah, but right? I guess the last game was was the last game was 71, 70. So I mean <laughs> we were getting somewhere, but Greg yeah. Maddox, I mean that you don't see any more soft tossing lefties at the end of the rotation anymore. You don't yeah, see yeah. I mean, there used to be one in like every rotation. And I mean, yeah. velocity has and this has not been confirmed nor denied, but I wonder if Tommy John surgery has anything to do with our, our velocity has anything to do with Tommy John surgery. I mean, I wonder if there's a correlation. There are way more arm injuries today than there were 20 years ago. And there's way harder fastballs now than there was 20 years ago. So I want a hat. There's no way it doesn't correlate. You know, you know what? And I think you you're onto a great point here. And, and I think it has to do with proper mechanics because if a guy's throwing 97, 99 miles an hour, with bad mechanics there's not a single coach in the world that's going to change that mm-hmm. because he does it naturally from his arm position the way his body works you try to change it he might throw 93 right or he might not know where it's going now so i think they're looking for stuff and not mechanics you know what i mean when mm-hmm. i say that yeah they're looking for they're not- throwers instead of pitchers exactly man exactly and pitchers get hitters out not throwers mm-hmm. and some of them do I, I will give them credit some of them do learn um but they they learn at the big league level where there's guys in the minor leagues that know how to pitch um yeah. i'm assuming so um but yeah there's a lot of throwers and not pitchers and that's something that i've noticed and i mean and that's not, the, not everybody's noah Syndergaard or uh or jacob de grom man Mm-hmm. Not everyone has that incredible arm talent and longevity where they uh, they can throw the way they throw and work so hard to get in a certain level where they can sustain that velocity and that movement um, without steroids. <laughs> I don't even think steroids. Uh, I don't know because do the, do, does it have anything to do with velocity? Because I feel like steroids more help those guys in that era for staying on the field and recovering quicker from something. And because, I mean, if you were to take steroids away from Barry Bonds, I'm convinced he only loses 15 homers. That's it. 
I mean, nothing more. He's, I mean, steroids, I mean, it doesn't walk a guy 600 times in 10 <laughs> It doesn't. Oh, that... it, I mean, he would lose six, like 15 home runs at the most. I mean, steroids, it's such an overrated thing. Oh, man. I mean. You hit the nail on the head, Steve. This is this is golden, man. This is awesome right here. What we are spitting about. knowledge oh right now. Oh, my Lord. This is one of my – I already know this is going to be one of my favorite episodes. <laughs> but I do want to – I thought about steroids today, and I wanted to bring up here. Um, and I want to put it in the context of another profession, right? So let's go – let's go to, like, if you're a teacher mm-hmm. or you're a professor, right, and you're getting late in the semester it's coming to finals time and you're really tired and you know what you wake up in that morning and you grab a coffee right there is literally no difference between a teacher grabbing a coffee and a player going on steroids that's two people trying to do the best they absolutely can for for their profession how can you hold it against the guy you're going to hold against the guy for for doing steroids but you're not going to hold it against the drug addict alcoholic for detrimental health to himself mm-hmm. like i don't get where the standard is I, I really don't get it like we we punish guys for years two years down the road for for steroids but if a guy gets a dui and and accidentally kills a, a kid or a, or something somebody gets hurt they're back on the field within days that just doesn't add up to me they're they're doing it to themselves they know the bodily harm they know what it does and it does let me just tell everybody, it doesn't make you stronger. It doesn't make you a better hitter. It doesn't make you throw harder. All it does is help with your recovery time. That's it. That is literally it. You still have to do the work to get stronger, to get better. Yeah. Right. It's not like you, you inject yourself and you wake up the next morning and you're buff. And you're I mean, yeah. I mean, all it does is kind of give you more, I guess, from what I've read, I mean, obviously i've never done any i mean but i mean i you just take one look at me and you could you could tell no but um i mean it it's and regarding the hall of fame i mean everybody don't even get me started (laughs) steven we could go into this real quick oh man okay let's do it yeah jose canseco okay might be the biggest fool on the planet right but in my mind he is the smartest guy when it came to steroids because he wrote all of those guys' names that he knew who were using in a book. And then when the Mitchell report came out years later, he was spot on with every single name that he called out. Really was. The Jose Canseco is the guy to listen. So he, he did steroids. He admitted, I would not have been good without them. And he said, I would not tell a young player to use them. So as much as a clown as this guy is, and by the way, Ivan Rodriguez is in the Hall of Fame. Jeff Bagwell is in the Hall of Fame. Mike Piazza. Thank you. Mike Piazza was a millionth round draft pick. Yeah. It was a courtesy pick because his dad knew someone in the Dodgers organization. Yeah. Lasorda. Lasorda. Yeah. It's, I mean, you cannot tell me that Mike Piazza, and Mike Piazza, I read his autobiography. I read a lot of baseball biographies. Piazza admitted to using the same stuff Mark McGuire was using and he's in the Hall of Fame. But Piazza said he did he stopped using it when Maguire was called out for it. So how are these guys in the Hall of Fame that did the same things? And Barry Bonds, who, by the way, Barry Bonds, while everybody else was on him, Barry Bonds was on him, but he was still better than everybody else that was on them. Exactly. And he was facing pitchers that were doing the same stuff he was doing and he was still miles better still what do you think oh you i mean everything you said you hit it right on the nail man i couldn't disagree with a single thing um the hypocrisy that goes on in in major league baseball the only reason he's out of the hall of fame is because he did not like the media because of what he what they did to his family his father man and they made money off of covering him single season yeah yeah, it, it, it's just the hypocrisy is insane. And I and I just, just wish they could see past themselves because Barry Bond hates you. You're not going to put him in the Hall of Fame. What? Could you imagine a coach saying, I don't like Bonds. Don't start him today. What? Like, what? What's your thought process, bro? 
Yeah, I would tell I that writer. I would tell that writer, hey, um, in case you didn't realize, there's not all choir boys and altar boys in the Hall of Fame right now. I mean, you My go in Lord. there, you go in there, you look at some of those guys' like personal life. I mean, I hate to judge it based on that. That's <laughs> that's kind of morbid, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, though they're not they're not all angels. I mean, mm-hmm. there's I mean, you go through them, the hundreds of players that are in there. There are jackasses that are in the Hall of Fame. I mean, Cap Anson is a guy who played in the 1800s and said that he would never take a take the field with an African-American player, and he's in the Hall of Fame, but Barry Bonds is not. I mean, the guy – I mean, so – I mean, it's Ugh, it's unbelievable. It's so frustrating, especially from a Giants standpoint because we – I mean, I, I had the luxury of watching him play almost every single game in a Giants uniform. There was nobody better on earth ever Mm -hmm. i I didn't see players before him but there was just nobody better man you couldn't throw the ball away you couldn't throw it in you couldn't throw it up and you couldn't throw it down you couldn't throw him a strike he would take you deep or at least barrel and the only reason he got out is because he overswing willie mays used to say that so I, i it's just so weird to me um i could care less i couldn't care less about steroid use i really couldn't and I'll mm-hmm. tell you why. At CSM, I'm not going to say his name, but you know who you are. <laughs> there was a third-string catcher. Let me let me just say this again. A third-string catcher that was on steroids. A third-string catcher at the junior college level on steroids. I want everybody to just think about that. His body was flawless. He had a pretty good arm. He could hit the ball. You know, he, he'd take balls deep in BP. You throw a little wrinkle at it, he may look a little different. That steroid didn't help you become a better ball player. And you know what? I just want to tell everybody that um, Barry Bonds is my uncle. And I have an interesting story. I've been waiting to tell you this, Steve. Are you ready for this? Okay, yeah, yeah, I want to hear it because I have some questions. So Barry Bonds grew up in a household, right, with one of his cousins. He had many brothers and family members, and, and it's their business. But uh, he grew up in a household with his cousin, Dana Bonds. Dana Bonds grew up to marry my uncle, Uncle Lance. So Barry Bonds' nephews and my cousins are the same exact people. Wow. That is crazy. That's insane, right? You've been keeping this in this whole time? I have. I have. And And I've come across Barry Bonds twice in my life. Once when I was or three times, twice when I was bat boy for the Giants, one in 90, 98, and then one in 2001. And both times, oh, oh, and then in a gym later when I was working for a door company, all three times, Stephen, I got star, starstruck. I couldn't say a single word. The last time I saw him, I was 26, 27 years old. I'm 33 now. And I made up my mind. I was going to go, I'm going to go tell him who I am. And because he gave me advice when I got drafted, mm-hmm. he sent an email to my aunt, Aunt Dana, telling me to get an agent, to uh, slow down on signing, to go through the contract with my agent. He was giving me like legit advice, how to literally sign a contract with knowledge in your head, not just signing your life away. So he was giving me legit advice. So he knows who I am. But he doesn't know me by face. He's never seen me. So I'm working for Vortex. I'm at uh, Equinox Gym in San Francisco on Union Street. And I see him working out and I freak out, Steve. I I started to, I freak out, dude. I'm like, you're in headlights. Today's the day. Today's the day. I'm going to go tell him who I am. I'm going to give him a hug and I'm going to tell him I love him so much. I go up the stairs. I open the door and he's right at my face, dude. He's right there. And I just stared at him like he knew, like, Okay, this dude knows who I am. I literally, I'm, I'm going to try to do it. I did this. <laughs> and so he was like, you know what he said? He said, what's up, man? And so all I could say back was, what's up, man? Oh my And that goodness. was my conversation with Barry Bonds. That is incredible. Up, <laughs> that is an A-plus story. My and Lord. He, yeah. You, uh, you... I, I was, I was, I had butterflies for like two straight weeks. That's I was insane. so happy. <laughs> All right. So before we wrap it up here, uh, I asked people if they had any questions. Ooh. And uh, 
we got a, a good amount of them here and there's a lot of good ones here. This one is from a, a former high school teammate of mine and someone that you coached, Mr. Danilo Herger. Oh um, yes. Yes. He wants to know what is the hardest part about baseball? Dealing with failure. That's it's the bulk of it. Failure. That's the bulk how, of how the game. You, yeah. How do you deal with that? How do you come back from that? That's, Everybody can deal with success. Not everybody can deal with failure. And I'll tell you one thing about scouts. They want to see how you fail. You're not like the, the perfect, you know, game is scout comes to see you play. You hit four home runs. That's not how it works. When uh, the scout came to see me play, my coach reminded me, they want to see how you fail. Don't come in and throw your helmet and start acting a fool. They'll, they'll scratch you right off the list. So Dealing with failure is the hardest part about baseball. Yeah. And Coach Harlan, who's going to come on very, very soon. Oh um, God, Harlan, man. Yeah, Tom Harlan, Genius. of course. He Genius. said that he was, uh, he was evaluating young talent at a showcase. And some kid missed a baseball in the outfield. An outfielder missed a ball and slammed or, or yelled, some, yelled some cuss words and um, – the evaluator next to him crossed his name off the list. Exactly. So exactly. it's that easy. That. Yeah. You're one word away from, from being looked at and being looked down to as a guy who needs to grow up a little bit. Yeah. So this next question here is from uh, on Instagram Reardon sports medicine. So I, I could kind of figure out who that might be. Um, bro. Yeah. He's <laughs> listening probably. All right. Um, he wants to know what is your favorite part about working at Reardon? So in terms of, I could narrow that down to some people Ooh. that may be unfamiliar with Reardon. What is your favorite part about working with high school uh, kids? Man, you know what? The first thing that comes to mind is Brandon Ramsey. This guy has a. Uh, Who we need himself. to get on here. And I know he's super busy and I want to work around his schedule, but I'll get in contact with him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I know he's I, listening too. Yeah. I, he'll listen, but, uh, that's the first thing that comes to mind. He, he sacrificed, he, um, he stuck his neck out on the line for me to, to get there. Um, he gave me a life. He gave me a career. So I'm forever grateful forever in his debt. Brandon Ramsey is, uh, the number one reason I enjoy going to work. I have a boss that I feel like is one of my best friends, my brother in in battle, man. Yeah. Um, but at, at the same breath, though, I'm there for the kids. I'm there for every single one. I don't care what sport you play. If you don't play a sport, if I can help you, I'm going to do that. So, so both of those come hand in hand. And Brandon's the same exact way as me, man. Everything he does is the better somebody around him. Uh, so let's move on here. This one is uh, from, actually, we just mentioned him, Tom Harlan, who will be yes. coming on very soon. <laughs> he wants to know how much better is Sam Bruno than South City? <laughs> oh in what it, weather the weather is way better in san bruno south city just gets fog non-stop south city san bruno had some legit battles when i think of san bruno i think of the orozco brothers uh there there's a long list of names that are really greg gonzalez um you know there were some great ball players coming out of san bruno we had some epic battles i won some i lost some but i would say what's bet who's better me <laughs> you're better than all the cities combined I'm better right? than all the cities no <laughs> i like the answer take your poison there's great on both sides man you can't go wrong and as you mentioned south city shout out to a guy who uh him and i follow each other on instagram i know you know him cliff calero is probably listening oh, yeah yeah his his dad i i know him well but his dad I held, I hold real near and dear to my heart. He was a guy that I felt taught me the game of baseball at a level of competitive pitching against the hitting. I, I learned how to hit the curveball because of Vince Leveroni and Mike Calero. And that I can't say enough about these. I might tear up. I just love him so much. Rest in peace, Mike Calero, Vince, if you're listening or, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, well, I, I've been so blessed to have those guys in my life. So, yeah. For well, sure. if that if that one made you tear up, this one's gonna make you tear up here. Oh, this one is, um, yeah. This one says, as a formerly drafted player, 
how does it feel that your wife continuously strikes you out? And that is from your <laughs> wife. Oh, she's going to love that. Yes. Um, interesting story. Uh, she actually, when we were getting married, she lied to God by telling God in church that she strikes me out on the regular. Now, in her, in her defense, whenever I swing and miss, it's a strikeout because the gap of but what she doesn't know is she doesn't throw a lot of strikes steve so mm -hmm. i gotta expand you have the to zone. chase yeah you have, have no choice to. yeah and sometimes that's what there are times where she throws it right down the middle i try to do too much and i swing and miss it's just part of the game um but yeah she tries to <laughs> she tries to throw little jabs and i can't believe she said that on her wedding day but that's just uh that's just our that's just our thing man Coach, I appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun. Yes, um, I, I knew this would turn out really good. I knew you'd be a great mind to pick, and I think a lot of people would like this episode. So I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. A lot of love and respect for you, Steve. I wish you the best in your future. I know it's bright, and I know this is not the last time I'm going to be on your podcast. It is not. You can, You know no. what? You could come on whenever you want. Okay. okay. I, you're, you're the first person to ever receive <laughs> that lifetime you know how like when you get like 10 years in the show some guys get like the the ballpark passes yeah you just got a, a rizzo cast uh, guest so whenever you yes. want whenever you're, you're feeling like you you have a hot take that you kind of want to boil off and whenever you notice something when you're coaching like oh god this kid forgot the bunt play i gotta go on rizzo cast and talk about <laughs> it the importance of not oh, forgetting I, the bunt plays okay uh, all right yeah. i got you Coach, I appreciate it again. Um, Jeff Ramirez, everybody. Uh, you guys could keep up with us, the podcast. New episodes coming soon.